Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'll be talking to pro-life activist, writer, and speaker Lila Rose, the president of Live Action, an organization she founded when she was only 15 years old and now has the largest digital footprint for the global pro-life movement. Lila's investigative reporting on the abortion industry has been featured in most major news outlets, including the LA Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, CBS, and ABC Nightline. She has appeared on Fox News' Hannity, Tucker Carlson Tonight, as well as CNN, BBC, and many other programs. She's also written for The Hill, for Politico, USA Today, and First Things, among other publications. She has spoken internationally on family and cultural issues and has addressed members of the EU and spoken at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. She has been named among National Journal's 25 Most Influential Washington Women Under 35, and Christianity Today's 33 Under 33. Today, we're going to be discussing her new book, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. It's a fantastic book, and it was a fantastic conversation. Here it is. The first question I had reading this book is this book was unlike any other pro-life book I've ever read. And I've read most of the ones that have been published, right? The book by Jack Wilkie, uh, Monica Miller's memoir, uh, Joe Scheidler's memoir from a couple of years ago. Uh, But your book was was part motivational, deeply personal in a way that very few pro-life books I've ever read have been. Um, and then, of course, there's the fact that it's one of the first books written by a pro-life millennial. So that's also sort of a unique twist. What made you decide to be so open and raw in this book? Well, I think um, when I look at what's really going to make the difference in the world, right? I mean, if we want to not just end abortion, but we want to build a culture that is truly pro-life, um, it requires deep inner transformation and change as much as it requires us being activists out around in the culture around us fighting for what's right. And so I really want, I felt strongly about sharing some of my own wounds and struggles and, you know, personal stuff in my family, obviously with the permission of my family, because Mm -hmm. those things absolutely um, impact, you know, what we do out in the world, like how we are activists, how we are advocates. And I, I really believe that if we want to change the world around us, we have to allow ourselves to be changed. And obviously that's by God's grace. Um, and so a lot of the book is about my journey of discovering how to allow myself to be changed and the advice I would have for others to do the same. Because again, if we are just focused on the external and not the internal, um, the transformation that we're hoping to see in the world will not happen in the, in the deep way that is long lasting. Backing up uh, just a little bit, when when I started your book, because I, I was kind of expecting and looking forward to, to be honest, sort of a beginning, middle and end sort of book, because, you know, you've had a very, very interesting career. Uh, I've read James O'Keefe's book. Um, and so I, I had sort of, he, he's also written a bit about the, the the way you guys started off doing Undercover and Planned Parenthood. So I kind of assumed it'll start there and then sort of carry on. But instead, it sort of moved back and forth and applied different lessons. Some of the lessons were extremely helpful for, I think, any pro-life group, especially a pro-life group starting out. But if you have to pinpoint the moment in my notes here, I pinpointed three. What moment would you pick when you realized that abortion was the cause you were going to pursue? Because a lot of the principles you lay out in the book could apply to any cause. 
Right. And it's true. And I, I wrote it that way intentionally because abortion is the greatest human rights crisis of our day. But once we've abolished it and it's unthinkable, we still have to fight for justice. So I think there are timeless principles for what it means to transform society and be an activist that I wanted to capture. Um, for me, you know, coming to see abortion as the greatest human rights abuse, as well as coming to commit myself to the cause fully, uh, I think, I mean, there were several different moments, as you noticed in the book, but one in particular was standing on the sidewalk outside of an abortion clinic at age 14 for the first time in my life. And um, I went there because I had become passionate about abortion. I was passionate about other issues as well, of course. But, you know, I saw abortion as this crisis and there's 3000 deaths daily in America at the time. Um, and so I remember standing outside this abortion clinic. And I think I had already been reading the words of Mother Teresa about abortion being the greatest human, uh, the greatest destroyer of peace. I'd already been kind of seeing the intellectual argument. I'd already been feeling heartbroken about abortion, but physically to stand, you know, in my own city, San Jose, California, where I was born and raised, where I was protected and safe in my childhood. And to stand outside in a, a, a facility that was, you know, 10, 15 miles from my childhood home that had been there since, you know, for years of my childhood. I didn't ever even know about it growing up until I became aware of the problem of abortion. And at 14 years old, to stand there and to know, watch women and girls going in, boyfriends and fathers and husbands sitting in cars or, you know, distraught faces. And this clinic killed up children up to 24 weeks, six months old. And to know that I was standing on a sidewalk and behind, you know, steel bars and a brick wall, there was a, a killer, a paid killer, an abortionist who was dismembering, living, moving human beings, children, and that I couldn't call the police. There, there was there was there was no one there to stop him. And 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 the world was going on as if it didn't care. There was a daycare across the street from the abortion clinic. There was a, a residential neighborhood adjacent to it. There was a YMCA, a gym, you know, a family gym. And everyone was going about their business. And here in the center of our city was a center, was a building dedicated to the destruction, the dismemberment of, of live human children. And I just stood there, um, again, heartbroken, but also just uh, convicted more than ever that. I had to make this the, the 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 focus of my work because this was not only this greatest human rights abuse in this intellectual sense, but this was a, a life and death struggle, the greatest death toll in America, the, the sheer number of people being killed. And it was done with the full consent of the law. And so that was what inspired me to start live action um, full time as a you know high school student, but ultimately to make that my my cause. And I took it to college. Obviously, the rest was history, but it was that realization of the of of how close to home the crisis is. Abortion clinics in all our cities, and I I couldn't be silent anymore. I couldn't pretend as if, um, you know, yes, there are other causes, but this nothing this eclipsed everything else. Everything else. Now, how did your family react when you started to get involved? Because if, if memory serves, your one of your first involvements was fundraising for a walkathon uh, in San Jose for a crisis pregnancy center, and you out fundraised everybody when you were a kid. So it's pretty safe to say that you threw yourself into it fully right from the beginning. And a lot of people who, when they come to the realization of what abortion is, and, and you said something in your book that I've had a lot of pro-life leaders say, um, when I was just chatting with them or interviewing them, which is when they first found out what abortion was, they couldn't believe it was legal. And 
what was it like then to to become passionate about this, to decide to dedicate yourself to this? To, you know, you you started live action when you were 15 years old. How did your family react? Because a lot of times I find the the the, the sheer passion people dedicate to the pro-life cause when they first realize what abortion is makes them kind of odd to those around them. And then they conversely look at those around them like, how can you not care more about the fact that babies are being killed every day? And it almost, the issue almost sits in between people and creates a misunderstanding because you can't understand why they aren't doing as much as you are. And they can't understand why you've become suddenly so tunnel focused on this issue. Right. And I think that's a good evaluation of what happens. And and, and that's the story of every you know, social reformer, right? They see the crisis of their era that others have become accustomed to and grown numb to or apathetic to, and they refuse to let the status quo continue. They they refuse to let it continue. And that comes at a cost. You know, it comes at being accused of, you know, being tunnel focused per se, or being even crazy or myopic when really you're, you're standing up to uh, to an evil that must be confronted. Um, you know, thankfully, my family was very pro-life just by by default. I mean, I'm one of eight kids. Um, my parents, my grandmother was already supporting the pregnancy center. My parents, you know, it took me at nine years old to a pro-life event that you just mentioned that I share about in the book where I raised money for an ultrasound machine. Um, but, you know, when I became activistic as a teen, um, that was new for my parents. They weren't activists in that way. And, you know, they were, to their great credit, you know, my parents were people that were very open to us kids exploring. Um, you know, we were homeschooled. We had a lot of, I call it a patchwork education in the sense that we had a lot of different activities going on, a lot of different opportunities. Um, it was a very rich education. And so when we were interested in something, and for me, it was activism and, and pro-life work, they did give us a bit of a, a long, you could say, leash to explore it. So I'm grateful for that. I think there was a time when my dad, um, I don't share about this in the book, but my dad, you know, sat me down and was very concerned about um, how much pro-life work I was doing. He thought it was almost imbalanced. And, and that was a discussion over the years. And obviously, right. as I got older, I could focus on it more. But but ultimately, you know, I think they were um, they were supportive. Now, I had friends over time that could not understand my dedication. And I, in some ways, lost close friendships because of that. But um, overall, I'm very grateful to have a family that was, um, if not fully understanding, very supportive. So when you started live action at 15 and, and live action has been many things over the years. And, and for me, one of the most fascinating aspects of the story for somebody who works for a pro-life organization is how live action evolved based on what the problem was in front of you, what needed to be done. And then in your chapter, learn to pivot, which I, th I think the book is worth buying for most people just for that chapter, if they do any pro-life work, because it's a really fascinating analysis. But how did you get from a live action being a club uh, to live action that most people became aware of, which was doing undercover stings at Planned Parenthood and exposing uh, the various unsavory practices they were engaged in? So I think the the principle that I use that basically took live action from this little fledgling youth club in San Jose to ultimately national recognition and then national following and national focus and even international work um, was leaving my comfort zone. 
you know, doing things that were not just, you know, within the box of, okay, I'm, you know, have a community organization. So I'm going to plan a little local youth event, right? But thinking outside of the box and saying, okay, what can I do to up the ante here? What can I do to um, create more tension or expose the tension of what's happening in these abortion clinics? And um, thankfully, you know, one of the early tools that I um, fell upon, and that was because of a serendipitous meeting with James O'Keefe and college and just being familiarized with the work of Mark Crutcher of Life Dynamics, a phenomenal pioneering um, investigative uh, pro-life reporter. Uh, that led me to start doing undercover work both at my school, UCLA, and then in Los Angeles abortion clinics. And that really, you know, the media attention, a threat of a lawsuit from Planned Parenthood that they threatened me with when I was 18 years old and a college student, those things um, catapulted the the conversation about about what was happening with abortion and undercover in these different places um, to some national media. And so that really started giving me an understanding of media landscape, what gets the media to talk about things, um, and also the power of exposing, you know, going, leaving your comfort zone, going somewhere, you know, going into enemy territory and actually showing the evils that are taking place. And, um, you know, that, that start, that kind of helped build momentum for live action to grow nationally and to, um, raise its sights beyond my, you know, hometown of San Jose or my college city of Los Angeles. This is where I think a lot of people will want me to slow down for just a minute because a lot of people and a lot of people who listen uh, to this podcast have done some form of pro-life activism, whether it be life chain, praying in front of a clinic, some form of street outreach. But what makes what you were doing so unique is that you were pretending to be somebody else. I remember a CNN video. I, I forget which year it was from, but you were blonde and you were chewing gum on the back of a vehicle pretending to be much younger than you were. Um, kind of practicing to go into the abortion clinic. And then it was going undercover and actually, you know, persuading them that you were somebody seeking an abortion. That must have been incredibly stressful just from a, a personal aspect. Like I know that you enjoy acting. You say this in the book multiple times, but I think a lot of people want to know what was that personal experience like walking through the doors of the clinic, you know, talking to them, making sure that your recording was devices were on properly. And then like the moment where you realize, I can't believe they said this. I got the story. Well, it was certainly um, nerve wracking in the sense that, you know, you're concerned. Are they going to know that I'm undercover? Are they going to see my camera? Are they going to suspect something? Um, but I was able to channel the nervousness to the person that I was trying my best to do justice by, to portray, which are these young girls who are often the victims of sexual assault and other abusive situations. And they end up in abortion clinics with unplanned pregnancies. Um, and even though Planned Parenthood is required by law to report suspected child abuse, they almost never do. You know, they repeatedly cover it up and sell secret abortions. Um, so, you know, in that sense, it was kind of it fit the role. Um, it certainly, you know, was, you know, there was one time I don't talk about this in the book, but there was one time where, you know, we went through, um, you know, we were about to go into the clinic and there was, you know, we had an appointment and there were metal, metal detectors and, you know, we had to make the call. We're still going to go through and, you know, hope that this works because, you know, there were a number of other factors at play and, and they, you know, magically the med, med, metal detectors did not go off, even though we had undercover cameras on us. Um, so there's just, there's just a lot of, you know, there was a lot that went into it each time, each time the, the stakes felt very high, but, you know, you know, just to maybe simplify it way down to the the basics. The fact that there's life and death playing out and there's so much at stake, you know, children's lives, and this could help, you know, build a movement to save their lives. That 
you know, it, 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 it transforms the, um, in a way, sort of the, the, the bargaining, like if I'm really doing this and I think it can help save lives, my discomfort, you know, my fear, you know, whatever about going undercover, it's, it really isn't that much. It's not a big deal in one sense. So I think, um, having the perspective of what I was really working towards changed everything for me. And I, I would say mindset is key for any activist. Like, what are you fighting for? How much does it matter to you? Um, and I think that mindset and having that mindset, taking, taking risk, leaving my comfort zone um, was, was essential to, to being able to do that. How did you figure out exactly how to go into the clinics, like sort of how to dress, how to act, how to do the cameras. Cause we've had Mark Crutcher on this show before talking about all of the work that he did. And you mentioned him extensively in your book, uh, his stings, phoning all the abortion clinics, finding out about the covering up of statutory rape and things like that. Well, you were doing something, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but unprecedented in going in and pretending to be a pregnant girl in person with a body cam on, as opposed to recording phone calls. What is the planning and preparation for something like that when you don't have a model to go off of? Well, I studied a lot and I talk in the book about, um, you know, I have a chapter called build a team where part of it was, you know, learning and I have chapters about mentors and the importance of learning from other people. I think in, in, in some ways, um, Mark Crutcher was a teacher for me. Um, so I definitely studied his work carefully before going undercover uh, but I also studied other investigative reporters. You know, I didn't invent investigative reporting. I, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about um, resistance from within and how, you know, we were accused of doing undercover work. And that was so unique. And how could pro-lifers do that? And it's like we didn't in invent this form of reporting, you know, um, police, military, um, journalists, um, you know, it's been happening for centuries. And um, for for the pro-life movement to use it as a tool is kind of a no-brainer, especially when most media groups are refusing to do their job with this. And especially when the police, it's not like the police are shutting down clinics, you know, they're letting, they're, they're, they're protecting their quote unquote right to operate. So um, yeah, I just studied a lot. You know, I, I think that's another key um, to any activist is the willingness to learn and to be humble and to, you know, get as much information as you can from others. You know, i I spent a lot of time on the phone asking people questions and for their advice. I ordered books about reporting and about even um, a lot of books about private detectors. I actually signed up for an online training course for private detecting um, detective work. Uh, so I just I, I, I basically, again, kind of a patchwork education, you could say, but I, I learned everything that I could that was available to me. Um, and there's a lot that's available. There's a lot of information out there. Uh, you know, I called Mark Crutcher and I just spent hours with him on the phone. I flew out to Texas and spent time, you know, under his tutelage, learned, just, you know, listening to whatever he had to say to me. So things like that um, were, were helpful. And I think, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Like if you want to figure out how to do something um, and you're just willing to keep every day, keep trying, learn more, you know, investigate more, explore more. It's amazing how how far you'll get. Now, what's really interesting in, in, in what you lay out, and I, I keep on saying that, but I re it really was an interesting book from start to finish for, for any of the listeners who are, who are considering getting it. And it, well, there was those details, but then also the way the investigations unfolded. And I, I remember uh, when uh, some of the investigations came out around 2010. So I, 2013 was your inhuman investigation. Um, and actually, and I was driving back from Kermit Gosnell's trial with uh, Stephanie Gray, now Stephanie Gray Connors, and we swung through D.C. 
to come to a stop the killing rally in front of a, a Planned Parenthood um, that was going on during the, the inhuman investigation. But I remember doing activism on a campus and people were stopping and saying like, this group of young people is just forcing the world's biggest abortion provider to respond to their claims in the media. But then you read the claims. And I remember abortion activists and journalists dedicated their time not to highlighting what you discovered, but dedicated to trying their very best to debunk it. They'd say things like deceptively edited. I think I've heard that phrase, I don't know how many times in relation to both your work and the Center for Medical Progress, despite the fact that, you know, if you just take the completely uncut clips, um, it kind of almost allows them to avoid the main question because they're talking about like dismembering children. They're talking about, especially in the inhuman investigation, some really horrifying things. But saying they're deceptively edited sort of allowed them to avoid addressing what the videos actually depicted. They did the same thing with the CMP videos. How did you respond to that? The fact that you would have these bombshell investigations, the videos obviously proved the thesis that you'd set out to prove. And then the response from CNN, MSNBC, even the New York Times was consistently, these are deceptively edited, we can write them off. Well, and I, I think that was a big and is still a big part of the struggle that the establishment, whether it's our school system, and I know this is the same in Canada as it is in the US and in many countries, um, establishment media, establishment politics is very pro-abortion. So they're not going to want to report on exposés being done of abortion clinics, or, you know, of abortionists. They're not going to want to favorably portray people trying to buck the status quo and, and, and change the system. Um, and so, you know, we did get a lot of, you could say, hostile media coverage. You know, it, when, the, when the stories were so big that we would do, um, there would be hostile media coverage because the, the best thing they can do is to ignore you, right? That's, that's the worst thing an activist can experience is to be completely ignored, right? Their job is to make people pay attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when we would get hostile media coverage, you know, it was good in the sense that any coverage is good coverage. Even if they say, oh, it's deceptively edited, at least the people who are listening to that report know that somewhere there's a video, whether it's deceptively edited or not, obviously that's what the press, this press is saying, but there's a video that at least suggests something bad about abortion. And I think at least that's bringing the conversation up. At least that's you know saying people care enough to go undercover in this country because of, the, because of abortion. And I think I think that is a win. And I and you know, I I um I, I don't think we should, you know, trust the media to do our job for us. And you know, a lot of my my work or live actions work has been affected because of social media. So you don't rely on the traditional gatekeepers, you know, mainstream press to cover the stories. Um, you know, but even social media can be very biased and what they choose to show in feeds and things like that. I mean, I have a whole ch you know chapter discussing even that. Um, but I think the bottom line is persevere, keep going, keep making noise. If something isn't working best, you know, maybe switch up your tactics and try something else. Um, but if they talk at all, at all about you or what you're doing, even if it's mean and untrue what they're saying, it's, it's totally lying about you, um, that can be a sign of progress because it's at least reminding people this is an issue that people care about and people are, are fighting over as we should. When did you decide to move from, from Los Angeles or sorry, the San Francisco Bay Area uh, to Washington, D.C. And, and, and then open an office there with, I think it was, what, a dozen staff members almost right out of the gate? Yeah. So, you know, right out of college, um, you know, this is around 2010, 
Uh, we're doing all these investigations. And in 2010, some big things happened, actually 2009 to 2010. So some states start defunding Planned Parenthood. So Tennessee was one of the first to go and they passed a law to take away um, Title X money from Planned Parenthood. And there's these there's this groundswell of legislative efforts to stop Planned Parenthood. And this was, you know, not just because of my investigative work, live actions work. It was because of, you know, a lot of other activists making noise, a lot of other groups getting involved. But our work helped be an ignition point for it. You know, in the years leading up to this, some of our, our groundbreaking investigations, of course, building on Mark Crutcher's and, and others' work. And so, you know, when I saw that there was a political moment happening, um, and then when uh, we released our sex trafficking investigation in 2011, um, the, a political moment happened that had never happened historically. You know, there's this groundswell at the state level, and then the U.S. House of Representatives voted in a bipartisan majority vote. So we had Democrats, independents, and Republicans to defund Planned Parenthood on a standalone um, vote. And that was unprecedented. You know, Planned Parenthood had always been the sacred cow, even the Republicans didn't want to touch them, but to have a bipartisan majority vote to defund them. And this was in the, the weeks after our um, sex trafficking expose. To have that happen, I saw, wow, this is, you know, we're, we're much closer than we realize if we're willing to go all in. And so that's what made my decision, um, made me decide to you know, leave California, head to DC. I was gonna knock on every door. I was gonna have every press conference. I was going to you know, fight to the nail until we had complete um, defunding of the abortion industry. And then I wanted complete abolition of abortion. You know, I think I saw defunding as an essential um, step because as long as they had all that money, they were enshrining um, abortions legality. You know, they are the biggest political proponent, the biggest lobbying group. So that was the inspiration to head to DC. And we did see unprecedented things happen in the years that, you know, I was there. I mean, we still have a, an office there and a, and a, and a presence there. Um, but, you know, as, as I share in the pivot chapter, uh, I learned, of course, many things. You know, I think activists, we should be idealistic. That's part of our power. Um, but I also understood, you know, I learned more about strategy and I understood something deeper about the strategy that's essential for the pro-life movement. And that's what led to me um, reorienting live action to not just focus on political successes and our investigative work, but to focus on the deeper um, cultural change, hearts and minds shaping that is essential to make the political successes long lasting. And this is where you you get very personal in the book. And I was almost surprised at some of the things you shared because there was a lot of, of points that you identified about being in the movement, being young, mistakes that you made. And I think that anybody, especially in the pro-life movement, but anybody, I think, in any line of work reading it will read some of the things that you write and think and immediately identify with their own version of that. Like when I read the story uh, that you wrote, for example, being late to a press conference in D.C., like I knew what my version of that embarrassing story was. And I remember reading that paragraph <laughs> and thinking, I wonder if I'd be big enough to write that down. Like my friends know it, you know, like, you know, the people who hold you accountable, you kind of discuss these things with them. But it it's quite something to write it in a book for public consumption. Um what was it like kind of going from your home turf of California, then you're in DC and you're playing in the big leagues. You're, you know, a couple of decades younger than a lot of the people that you're working with. And when you're at the top, the air is thin. It's, it's, it's really hard. And a lot of people then have the illusion of power. Uh, they have all of these different languages that they don't necessarily speak. It's, it's a really, really tough town to figure out, especially in a hurry. 
And, you know, you had the ear of a lot of people very, very quickly. What was that like for you personally trying to adjust? You mentioned the loneliness in the book, which is the sort of thing when you read, you're like, of course, that makes perfect sense. That would be very lonely, but that's not what people seeing you initially would have thought. What was that transition like? Sure. And it's funny because I had close friends, you know, who I let read the book before it went to publish and they're like, are you sure you want to share all these things, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a certain freedom. They're like, you, you know, if, 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 you know, what if, how would you like this to be dragged all over Twitter? You know, these embarrassing moments or whatever. And, you know, and I just thought, listen, I think vulnerability can be a bridge, you know, to let your enemies over, of course. Right. <laughs> but vulnerability is also a bridge to, get others to want to join. And so, and and I, and I don't really care about my enemies. I mean, I do care in the sense that I want to convert them, you know, I want them to join, but, um, you know, I, I think if you can, can lose the fear or the desire or, or the expectation to not be hit by your enemy. So I think there's a sense of like, you know, it hurts to get hit by an enemy. It hurts to get attacked by media. It hurts to get slandered. It hurts to whatever, get death threats. But if you can sort of, because you're used to it, I guess, you know, I got so used to it. Um, there's this beautiful freedom and saying, okay, my expectation no longer is to be free from, you know, public slander. You know, I, I understand that this is with the territory. And so I, I embrace it, you know, I accept it. Um, and I think there's a lot of freedom in that, but, but yeah, I mean, being in DC, you know, I was fresh out of college. Um, we were doing these very like highly publicized, um, uh, investigative reports and, you know, Congress was voting on them. I mean, there were these big things happening. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 in many ways, I wasn't fully equipped for what I was doing. Um, but in other ways, my lack of sort of um, acceptance of how the political process goes was also a, um, an asset because I think there's this um, incredible inertia in DC, even amongst, you know, politicians who are trying to do good things, like, you know, well-intentioned people, where they're so used to doing it the way it's done. And if the way it's done isn't working, if the way it's done has a permitted abortion on demand for decades and the deaths of tens of millions of children, um, then having an idealistic activist come in and kind of break things a little bit can actually help momentum. And so I think some of my sort of, um, you know, my, my weaknesses and my inexperience proved in some ways to be an asset. Now there were painful moments that came with that, you know, people that were like, what are you doing here? You know, other pro-life leaders, like, what are you doing here? Why are you messing up my strategy? You know, right, whatever their, right. you know, hundred year old strategy is to end abortion that's taking hundreds of years or, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, there were mistakes that I made, or it was certainly lonely. You know, I, I, I like you said, I got there, I immediately tried to hire, you know, trying to desperately raise money. I raised my first million. I, I hire like 10 people, they're all like fresh out of college. You know, I tried to find as experienced people as possible. It's very hard to find talented, experienced people, um, unfortunately, who will work full time in the pro-life movement. That's just a, an unfortunate fact, you know, that's changing with time, but it, it's hard. Um, but yeah, and then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having to be the boss for my friends and um, raise money and do all this, you know, very high profile work. And then plus I'm, I'm a normal, I'm normal, you know, I'm dating, I'm trying to, you know, make my way in the world. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was messy. Um, and I think, you know, I think any story, any of our stories where we're trying to make a difference, leave our comfort zone, get started, you know, just go out there and, and make a change. Like it's going to be messy. And I think, um, I, I wanted to show some of that mess in the book because I think it's important that it does, it's not all buttoned up, you know, um, no, it's not going to be powerful. buttoned up when you're doing it. 
No, that was really powerful because, yeah, that age difference did mean that, you know, yeah, as you say, you mentioned in the book, you know, you were dating, you were going through the normal things somebody of that age would go through, which is, you know, heartbreak, dating is hard, friendships are hard, you know, family relationships can be hard. So on top of all that, you got this enormous public pressure. Um, you're young and then you also have a massive amount of attention directed to yourself at all times. A lot of it, not great attention. And so uh, what, it's interesting you say that as a young person, that your idealism was almost an asset because I, I, you often see that in movements and, and you've read about all these movements as well, that their idealism was the key to their success because they refused to accept the status quo in a way that moved the Overton window because there was just a refusal to accept that this is the way things are being done. And we've had a, a bunch of, of political activists um, on the show. Uh, we've had Marjorie Dannenfelser, for example, on uh, um, about three or four times to discuss politics. And I wanted to know when, when you first got to D.C., what, what was the most frustrating thing you found or the most surprising thing you found about some of the, the Republican congressmen or senators who, who are portrayed as, as pro-life heroes? But then maybe you realize that, you know, abortion was, you know, number five or six on their priority list, or they didn't care as much as you thought they did, or what was sort of a, a moment that could have introduced cynicism if you had let it? Well, I share a few examples in the book and I'll, I'll share one now. Um, you know, one, one was, you know, I was in one of these many behind the scenes meetings um, with political leaders. And I was, again, the youngest in the room, you know, probably by at least a decade or two. And um, we were, they were talking about Planned Parenthood. They were talking about a lot of different kind of, you know, issues, but Planned Parenthood was one of them. These are a lot of Republicans. And, you know, the chief of staff for the House Majority Leader at the time, you know, a Republican, um, you know, very pro-life. He'd won pro-life awards from pro-life groups, all of this, right? Um, you know, we're talking about why don't we um, not allow Planned Parenthood funding in the new budget that's going to go to the president's desk. And, um, at the time, this was um, President Barack Obama, who was obviously very pro-abortion. But the Republicans, you know, the job of the House of Representatives is to decide where the money should go. Like they hold the purse strings. Obviously, the Senate has to approve it, but they can choose to take Planned Parenthood out or put Planned Parenthood in. And Planned Parenthood was just always in by default. And so we were demanding, take them out. You you have the power. You have the votes. Take them out. And, and then they were saying, well, we can't because then if we take them out, then we send it to Obama, you know, Obama won't sign and then we'll get blamed for a government shutdown because if there's no budget, government spending slows and there's this period of crisis. And we're like, good, let there be a shutdown. This is time for a shutdown over this because that's how bad abortion is. And, and let's switch the narrative and blame Obama for this. He wants to fund abortion so bad he's shutting down the government. So anyways, we're in this meeting and, you know, the chief of staff for this, um, uh, you know, leader in the in the in the house um, basically says we can't stop asking me to do this, guys. Like he's angry at us, you know, not just me and activists, but all the other leaders in the room. He's like, you know, if I do this, if I force, you know, my boss to send this bill to President Obama, whatever, it's going to be on the front page of Politico, and you know, it's going to say Republicans shut down the government. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, so I, I am I hearing this correctly, Politico. This like, you know, DC mag, which most Americans don't even know about, but Politico is now running the United States of America and Politico is calling the shots and whether or not children live or die, you know, because of Planned Parenthood funding. And <laughs> just like, I was so like, this cannot be happening. And these are the people that pro-life is like, good job, guys, you're doing so great, you know, because they think that, you know, that's what they're being told by other pro-life leaders or they're doing their champions for us. So anyways, that's just an example. But 
you know, that's, that's what happens in politics. And it's all about, they say, well, politics is the art of the possible. Yeah, but who defines what's possible? Do you let the opposition, do you let Barack Obama, you know, your, your pro-abortion president tell you what's possible? Well, good luck with that. You're never going to win. You're never going to change the status quo. Um, and so, you know, that still needs to happen in D.C. I mean, you know, we still have a presence there. We're still doing work. But ultimately, um, you know, the, the, the voice of the activist is necessary. But one of the things I learned, Jonathan, in D.C. is having the voice of the activist say it at the table in those conversations is far less powerful than having the voice of the activist say it because the whole country is clamoring for it behind the activist. Um, right, and they're willing right. to, you know, they're willing to vote that person out of office, you know, because of them not being strong enough. So I, I, I realized that my power wasn't being at the table. You know, they say, oh, get a seat at the table. Just right. be at the table and you'll be a power player. Um, that some of your greatest power is actually when you're not even in the room but they they're still talking about you yeah. and 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 the work that you know the, the 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 grassroots not even about you but about the 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 grassroots who are clamoring for change. Now, what's really really interesting that like I a lot of things sort of clicked for me because I had followed uh, I, I think anybody who was like a young pro life or followed live actions work because it was one of the coolest things going on because of the undercover aspect of it, which is just unique and therefore really fascinating. So. You know, there was all of these these exposés and you were doing this undercover work. And then at a certain point, um, live action pivots and you have a whole chapter, as I previously mentioned, on this. And you started to do you know, cultural activism and you created these these abortion procedure videos, uh, which are on your YouTube page. I believe the number that I read uh, in your book was that you've had over a billion video views total. Is that correct? On live actions work? Yes. Yeah. We're like one point three now, but yeah, over a billion. And so. What's interesting to me is the moment where you realized, okay, we actually need to, the, the term drain the swamp has now been ruined. Um, it used to be a very effective way of describing, you know, trying to change the culture, but it now has a very particular political meaning, but that we need to change hearts and minds on abortion so that we can start to fuel political change. And what was really interesting is, is when you were looking at what David Delayden and his team at the Center for Medical Progress um, had accomplished. And of course, you worked with David at Live Action uh, for years, so you knew him personally. And then realizing that he he broke one of the biggest abortion scandals uh, in recent decades. And I think the way you put it was Planned Parenthood sort of absorbed the body blow and moved on. Uh, you know, people were getting, you know, caught you know, having a salad, talking about crushing babies above and below, you know, usable organs, and they still survived. And, and they, they they retained their federal funding through four years of administration that actually seemed pretty determined to take away their funding and actually tried various routes of doing so. And that, that's when you realize that this wasn't going to happen through undercover activism and that we needed to actually focus on, on the culture. What was that process like? Because I think a lot of pro-life groups will start off with idealism and there's a, there's, there's something in between idealism and cynicism that is very hard to define because realism feels like cynicism a lot of the time. Um, people can accuse you of like, well, you don't think this is possible anymore. So what was that process like going from realizing, wow, Planned Parenthood could sustain this. I'm not sure what we could throw at them that they wouldn't walk away from. We've got to rethink our strategy here. Well, I think if we start making what's possible dependent on our, you know, our pet strategy, then yes, it won't be possible. But if we hold our strategies and our projects and our tools at an arm's length, and they're really just all tools to achieve what we are going for, 
um, then anything is possible. And I think it's not that I didn't think it was possible anymore to defund Planned Parenthood or that I didn't think it was possible anymore to abolish abortion. It was that, you know, this project of undercover reporting, which we were so laser focused on and we were doing, we'd done like one major investigative expose for like six, seven years in a row, like these like massive things. And then David did his, you know, year eight. Um, and as I, you know, wrote, like you said, I, they absorb the blow and, you know, then Trump comes to power. I mean, this hadn't happened yet, but I kind of foresaw it, I guess you could say, you know, even with the, you know, as many pro-lifers like to call him the most pro-life president ever, um, they got more federal funding under the Trump administration than ever because they upped their Medicaid reimbursement, even when Trump took away their, um, some of their title 10 money. So I, you know, looking at the, the larger, playing field or the larger landscape of abortion in the industry and the culture. I saw that undercover reporting played a role and we still do it at live action. We still have stuff ongoing now and others are still doing it. Undercover reporting played a role and it was cool. You know, I can see like people saying it's cool. It's interesting. You know, it, it is interesting, but it's, it has one role and the larger strategy must, must include a more uh, in-depth, and creative and persistent approach to reaching more hearts and minds daily with the truth about abortion, the victim of abortion and the humanity of the child. Um, and, and that was essential and it wasn't happening. Like most people didn't even think about abortion on a daily basis. You know, they had never seen or even thought about what abortion does to a baby. And so that realization, you know, just seeing like Planned Parenthood so Teflon proof to our investigative work I realize it's because a lot of people have accepted abortion in the first place. So learning about Planned Parenthood covering up sexual abuse is like, eh, you know, that's that's bad, but let's just, you know, fire the, some of the people and hire more, right? <laughs> or, you know, baby parts trafficking. Uh, you know, that sounds bad, but, you know, these abortions have to happen. And, you know, baby parts is a very, you know, sensational word name for it. And, you know, embryonics research is necessary. I mean, there's all these rationalizations. I mean, ultimately, if you've accepted killing the child in the womb, all these other abuses, it's very easy to rationalize them. And so I, I realized we have to hit right at the middle of the bullseye, which is we have to rip away uh, the false idea that abortion is somehow safe, a medical procedure. You know, it's not really taking a life. We have to show the violence, the barbarity of abortion. And that was what you know, inspired the pivot. And I said, until every single America, American sees the truth about abortion um, and has an opportunity to be activated and, and as, is, is connected to a larger movement that they, they're passionate about, that is the way to, to win this fight. While I was reading the, the pivot chapter, one other phrase that I've heard a lot of people use when they're discussing strategy uh, that popped into my head was counting the cost. Uh, now, I, you know, the number of, of, of stories I've heard about, you know, the Operation Rescue Days and and then civil disobedience during uh, during the civil rights movement in, in the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, I was at Joe Scheider's funeral a month and a half ago. And after after condolences, um, after the wake, a bunch of us went out uh, to just chat and, and have supper. And I think like 75 percent of the people around the table had a rap sheet a couple of feet long. And I was the youngest person there easily. It was except for Andy Moore from SBA list. And one of the things I was, I was thinking about reading your book is if you look at what's happening uh, to David Delighton and his colleagues right now is Planned Parenthood is, is trying to destroy him. And they've got, they've got um, unbelievable amounts of money. Um, they can hire hundreds of lawyers 
and they can essentially, you know, play the law like a fiddle, find loopholes and, and just find whatever way they can to crush those who are exposing what they're doing. Like when Joe Scheidler himself, you know, his case went to the Supreme Court and now V. Scheidler, he went to the Supreme Court three times because they just they were a giant. Right? They have the money at at their disposal. They have the PR machine at their disposal. It's very, very hard uh, in an ordinary David and Goliath story for for the truth to prevail. To what extent do pro-lifers have to consider what would be the best? Because you, if you do look at what's happening with undercover work, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to see how a major expose could make an impact when you spend the next six, seven, eight years, maybe even longer. It was 27 years for, for now V. Scheidler, just almost destroying every aspect of your life, seizing your laptops. To what, to what extent do those factors play into not just the pivot, but understanding what's, what's actually worth it? Like, can we do something better here at shifting the culture in this area? Um, how, how did that all factor into your decision making? Sure. Well, I think, you know, it, it's interesting because my the decision making wasn't an analysis of, oh, these are legal risks that we can't take because there, you know, there are legal risks that are easier and harder to take um, when it comes to investigative reporting. And, you know, what David did was such a tremendous, um, you know, it was such a tremendous expose because he went places that hadn't been gone, you know, no one had gone before, you know, to a NAF conference and, you know, expose that and to, you know, sitting down with abortionists at a restaurant and exposing them, talking about baby body parts and, and selling, you know, selling them. I mean, just horrific encounters. Um, so he took, you know, he, he went places that, you know, we hadn't gone, live action hadn't gone. And and he's taking the blow for that. I mean, he's, he's a hero. He's taking tremendous hits for it. So, you know, I, I can't, you know, we're still doing undercover work at live action since 2015. We've done work. Um, you know, our approach is conservative in the sense that, you know, we're very careful what um, what, what we do, you know, is a, a, a legal, it's done legally, it's done carefully. Um, I think David was, uh, you know, there's a lot of theories I have for why they have been so vicious to David in, in, in court. I think that they think that, you know, um, in public opinion, they are, they're somehow winning with that. I think, you know, live action, our job and other pro-lifers is to tell the story of what David actually accomplished and what he showed the public yes. and continue to show the public. Yes. Because here's the reality, you know, David's videos were seen by a few million people. You know, that, that, that's not enough, you know? No, and he's got um, so much more there. They're probably trying to, I'm always wondering what else right. does he have? Because part of the viciousness must be, they just don't want the public to see the rest of the videos. Right. But, but we also, we can't, and I think, you know, he has, he, he, the stuff he has done is so powerful, but it has to be a combination approach because, you know, it's not enough to just put out a video. You have to, you know, have your, your marketing plan and your social media, you know, um, promotion in, connected to it. You have to have all these other facets. And, you know, when I started out, I didn't have those, but growth grew them over the years. Um, and we've tried to, you know, obviously heavily promote David's work because it's incredibly important and groundbreaking. But, you know, I think I think that it was easy in some ways for Planned Parenthood to go after David because he was, you know, in some ways in a one man army, you know. And so they're like, you know, he didn't have, you know, he the movement was behind him in the sense that we are cheering him on. But, um, you know, he really did this on his own and he did, a, you know, did something very incredible. So, you know, I think our job in the movement is to come to his defense, is to tell his story, you know, who he is, because they're trying to demonize him. Um, you know, he's an incredible person with a huge heart that's incredibly bright, um, that's done something, a huge service. 
Um, and then to continue to remind people what he exposed, because it, you know, we all have seen it, you know, the pro, the hardcore pro-lifers, but most Americans still don't know what he did, what he did and what he exposed. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's about eyeballs. Um, it's about awareness. It's about getting it in front of more people. And there's a ton more of that work to be done, not just for David's expose, but for abortion itself to show people what abortion is. Now, eyeballs is a, is, is obviously the essence of, of what the pro-life movement needs to do. And you lay that out in your book too. You look at the history of social reform and how injustice has been traditionally exposed. I was wondering when, when I was reading your learn to pivot chapter, how you've been preparing and you, and you wrote a bit about this and I know you've, you've, you've posted a lot about this on social media as well, preparing for, you know, the big tech war on, on pro-life information. Uh, you mentioned in your book, for example, that, you know, live action has posts getting fact checked by supposedly independent third party fact checkers that are the abortion industry. Uh, you have like I, I remember when when this first started, I, I started Googling abortion just to see what the first 20 hits are. And they would all be like CNN fact sheets and things like this. You know, it, like it, it would almost be impossible to pull up. Point, a parenthood. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so right now, like over a billion video views, this is enormous. This is up there with with PragerU and, and organizations like that. And you will tell stories in the book of, of people who have canceled their abortions as a result of seeing these videos. And so they're making a, a real world impact. And they're also they're, they're saving real human lives, which has a ripple effect for generations. What is your plan to ensure that they can't shut you down or keep your content away from eyeballs, which they're obviously intending to do? Sure. Well, there's a multifaceted approach that we have. And I, I think the first one is work with them as much as humanly possible. I, I, I will say, I think there's a temptation um, amongst people who see, you know, leftism and see that a lot of these companies are run by, you know, pretty liberal far left people who are often pro-abortion. Um, and I think there's a tendency to be like, they're after me, you know, they're out to get me. And they certainly have been out to get some. I mean, we've been totally banned from Pinterest, for example. Like, it's just crazy. The abortion clinic can advertise on the image sharing website of Pinterest, but live action can't even put like, you know, I'm a person to a person, no matter how small, you know, or I guess Dr. Seuss would be double canceled, but, um, you know, or they can't put like, I'm a, you know, like, you know, a picture of an ultrasound or whatever it is. Um, but I will say, you know, there's a lot, there are still a lot of good people working at these companies, at least well-intentioned people. Um, and so we try our best to, you know, go by their rules of service. We understand there's a double standard. We understand that there, you know, there are some people at the companies out to get us, but we try really hard to work behind the scenes to make it work with them. And so far, overall, we have been successful. Um, that doesn't mean we will always be successful. Um, so that's why we have other elements of our approach, which include, you know, diversification. So we're not just on a couple of the platforms, you know, we're constantly seizing new platforms and new opportunities so that we are as diverse as possible about where you can find our content and who we're reaching. And then we are also working on databasing. I mean, we're not just connected with people through social media. We're, we built one of the largest activist databases um, in the movement at Live Action. And that's because we're working really hard to get people's email addresses and phone numbers and their addresses and things like that. So that's our approach. You know, we, we also go the legal route. You know, we have threatened lawsuits and, you know, that kind of stuff. But but ultimately, you know, it's pivot. You know, if we do get totally shut down, Jonathan, one day we'll be in the streets. We'll be practicing our First Amendment right. 
one person at a time, you know, with our friends that created equal and, you know, justice for all and center for biological reform. And, you know, you guys, you know, doing that work physically on campuses, you know, we right. will, we will do what we need to do. Um, but right now we have this opportunity to do it on social media in a huge way. And we're going to try our best to make that work for as long as possible. The final question I, I wanted to ask you, just because I really think that any listener who doesn't buy the book and read it, which they should, should hear the story because it really was it really was just such a beautiful story and encapsulated how we as individuals, we as families, we as churches, and we as a culture have to respond to the reality um, of unexpected pregnancy. Um, I, there was several different people have said it. So I'm always unsure of which, of which pro-life leader coined the term first. Um, but they said, whenever I see somebody who is pregnant, a single person who's pregnant, my first response is of admiration because they could have taken the easy way out and the entire culture is flowing in that direction, pressuring them, offering them, telling them that this is no big deal. And you tell the story of, of your sister and your dad's reaction when she told him she was expecting uh, what turned out to be uh, her son. Could you just share that story with us? I'd love to. So it's my little sister, Katerina, who is, you know, kind of a character in the book because she's been a, you know, hugely important in my life. And she, you know, had an unplanned pregnancy at age 19. And I was very honored that she chose to tell me first. And, you know, I was there with the, where she chose to tell me she thought she was pregnant. You know, we went to the CVS bathroom to, take the, you know, the drugs from bathroom. She wanted to take the pregnancy test and we found out together. Um, but I remember her terror at the thought of telling our parents. And I think that's very natural, you know, to, to the terror of someone who's single, who does not expecting to get pregnant to tell their family. Um, and when she did get up the courage to tell my dad and my dad, you know, I talk a lot about him in the book too. And, you know, some of the mental health issues in our family and just some other you know, elements of, you know, personal elements of our family and the dynamics there. But my dad is just a man who's always trying to grow and um, at heart is a very gentle person, even though he, you know, has very strong opinions. And, you know, she finally went up to his office, you know, I was home with her. We were both at my parents' house. She was living there at the time I was visiting. And, you know, she goes into his study and he's reading, he's a book lover, you know, I inherited that from him. And, you know, she, she, she just kind of blurts it out. She doesn't know how else to say it. You know, she's terrified. She's like, dad, I'm pregnant. And I remember um, the look on his face, you know, immediate, just sort of surprise, total surprise. He did not see that coming, or maybe he did, but in that moment, he was totally surprised. And then um, just, he started to, there was no anger, no nothing. He, he actually just started, it was like the mercy of God, you know, in him. He started to just reassure her. And I watched my sister, you know, terrified, like a little girl there, all of a sudden being rebuilt up before my eyes as my dad, you know, very calmly told her he was proud of her, that her life was going to change because of this, but it was going to change in a beautiful way. And it could be hard, but it was going to be beautiful. And he was a grandfather. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, what, what a, what a witness, you know, what an example to me. And then he mm -hmm. goes and gets mm -hmm. a bottle of champagne and, um, you know, she can't even drink champagne, she's pregnant, <laughs> yeah. but he says it's time to celebrate, you know? And I just think that's, you nailed it, dad. You know, like yeah. that's, that's the way to do this. Like we're celebrating because this is a human life, you know, it doesn't matter how they were conceived. This is a human life that is our, our, our family member. So, um, you know, there's a lot more to the story, but, but ultimately celebration, that's the heart of the pro-life movement, celebrating human beings, celebrating life.
And the way the way you put it, it really is such a beautiful passage of the book. And and you point out too that you know your family is a Christian family, so obviously they might not necessarily approve of of you know the, the circumstances surrounding it. But that the child is it's beautiful, it's a gift, and it's just another example of God returning good when we make mistakes. It's it's another example of of the grace of God and how He rewards our mistakes with good things. It's almost unfathomable to think about. Yeah, definitely. And I think I do reflect on this in the book a little bit. I, I think our culture is so backwards. You know, there's all of this stuff about, you know, licentiousness and just having sex when you want it. And, you know, just, you know, just consent to make sure you consent and it's safe sex, you know, just as long as it's quote unquote safe, it's all great. Um, and then babies, you know, the, the natural re- result of sex, which is beautiful. I mean, sex worked, you know, a baby coming into being that's seen as the burden. Um, and so it's like, we expect teenagers to have sex, but we expect teenagers to not get pregnant. And I think that's so cruel. It's so cruel. It's unrealistic. It's not, it's not loving. Um, and, you know, I think to turn it on the head and say, no, first of all, you can be a responsibility and, and, you know, have a better, make better choices, you know, to pursue a relationship, marriage, ultimately sex and marriage. But if there's a mistake made, the baby is not the mistake. You know, the baby is a blessing. Uh, the mistake does not define you, nor does it define that child. Final question. Where can listeners who are hopefully interested by now um, pick up a copy of your book? Thank you, Jonathan. Well, it should be available wherever books are sold. Um, so Barnes and Noble or Amazon or Books a Million. It's also available at liveaction.org. And part of the proceeds will go to live action if you purchase it at liveaction.org. And it's available all those places for pre-order now, which means you secure your copy. Um, and then it comes out um, for, you know, you'll actually get it in the mail May 4th. Well, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for reading it. And thanks for all the great work that you do. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with pro-life activist and author Lila Rose. I do hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you want to check out past and similar conversations, head over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab, and you can subscribe to our show to see past shows, keep track of future shows, and to get all of the most important news and conversations on the life and family battle, both here and internationally. Thank you so much for joining us, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.